Tonight, we're going to uh, seek to do the impossible, so you listen quickly. There are 15 Psalms of Ascent, and tonight we're going to do the final four, and uh, we'll, we'll move fast. In fact, we'll be doing a little different kind of overview and study rather than a verse by verse. We'll be going thematically, but uh, we're going to try to uh, give you a sense of what these last final four Psalms of Ascent contain and how we can apply them uh, to our lives. So we're calling uh, the study tonight a final four lessons from the top of the staircase. The final four lessons from the top of the staircase. The Psalms of Ascent, that word translated ascent can also be translated upward or, or climbing the stairs. And we've been using that metaphor throughout the study. Each of these Psalms of Ascent represent another step forward and upward in our own spiritual pilgrimage. So this is really about a pilgrimage up the staircase, with each step taking us a little deeper into our own personal understanding and walk and learning the ways of God. Uh, we started right at the bottom, out of distress. We'll end right at the top, worshiping. And so you see the, the wide range of emotions and experiences that these 15 Psalms represent. Uh, we've said to you that there is some question about the significance of this songbook within a songbook because there are only 15 Psalms labeled Psalms of Ascent, and they're placed sequentially in the book of Psalms. They're not scattered throughout the 150, but they start at Psalm 120 and they go through Psalm 134. And so they're sequential and they represent something of progress and movement upward in our pilgrimage with the Lord. These are songs that were meant to be sung, many of them to be sung antiphonally. By that I mean uh, part of the group that were walking up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three major holidays, as they would walk, part of them would sing one part of the psalm, and the other part of the group would antiphonally respond by singing the, the, the other part of the psalm. Or, when they got up to Jerusalem, the priest would say one part of the psalm, and the people would respond antiphonally back uh, to what the priest said uh, to them. So with that little brief overview in mind, let's open our Bibles tonight to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. Let me just tell you, uh, most of, many of you have prayed for Rose's mom about this time, about, a, I guess about two hours, uh, an hour after you finished prayer meeting last week, uh, Rose's mom went to heaven. We, all the family, in-laws, and, and, and family, the two daughters and, and brother were there uh, when Miss Sarah breathed her last. But uh, many of you are aware of that. You have been praying. Those of you who aren't, uh, I just wanted to let you know about that. and Thank you for praying. Uh, God's will is good and acceptable and perfect, and we embrace that. God gave her 90 two years. That's a wonderful blessing. And uh, 91 of those years, she lived independently, even driving 
herself to church to get her hair fixed and that kind of thing. Uh, so uh, we just want to thank, I don't know if you, you, you probably didn't know it, but your church sent flowers. And uh, that was a, a great, uh, when we walked in and saw those, our hearts uh, were blessed by that. And we just want to thank you for it. <clears throat> well, let's look uh, kind of in an overview way. <coughs> what we want to do is look at Psalm 132, or rather Psalm 131, Psalm 132, 33, and 34. Now let me give you a word if you mark in your Bible. Uh, this is, would just be a word to summarize each one of those Psalms, and then we'll try to come back and fill in some of the blanks. Psalm 131 the operative word that I have placed on that psalm is the word contentment. Contentment. They have climbed the stairs, they have entered into the temple, and now they are learning what it means to live a life of peacefulness and contentment in the presence of God. So we will look at that. Uh, in Psalm 132, the operative word would be the word priorities. Once we get into the presence of God, and into the mode of worship, then he clarifies our priorities so that uh, the things he loves, we love, and the things he hates, we hate. And that we hate, and that helps us to set uh, what is first and priority in our life. So for Psalm 132, you might put out by that t uh, title, Priorities. Now, for Psalm 133, the operative word, would be the word unity. Unity. And we're going to talk about what unity precipitates in the life of the faith community. In other words, there are some things God will not, I, I hesitate to say God cannot, he cannot only in the sense that he's chosen not to operate apart from faith and apart from unity. And so in Psalm 133, we will see what unity produces in the faith community. In the Old Testament, it would be in Israel. In our understanding and application of it, it would be in the church. So what does unity produce in the church? I think it's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting look at that. And then for the last, uh, the last one, and, and that's uh, Psalm, uh, from Psalm 134, is the word worship. Worship. Uh, it is the last sum of ascent. It is on worship for a good reason. That's where we've been headed now, isn't it? For 15 weeks. And that's where we're going to end. All right? So with your Bible open there to Psalm 131, uh, let's just kind of go back and fill in some of the blanks on that. He says, O Lord, my heart is not proud. Now that my, look up there where it says a psalm of ascent. You see that of David? I, I, I will refresh your memory that four of these 15 psalms of ascent are psalms written by David. Now there are others that are written about David, and we'll see that in the next psalm. One psalm 132 is sung about David, but not by David. But this is a psalm of David, which means when he says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, the my there refers to King David. So David is, uh, is lifting up 
the fact, or, or, or highlighting the fact that regardless of who he is, King David, and regardless of his accomplishments, his heart is not proud. That, that is highlighting the fact that David had a grasp on who he was in reference to who God is. And he saw that regardless of any accomplishments he had made, in light of God and God's uh, power and God's uh, accomplishments in not only creating this world but sustaining it, but he had no reason to be proud. He said, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Now, just hold, hold your place there and turn uh, uh, to, the, to the next book, Proverbs, written by Solomon, and go to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 16 of the book of Proverbs. He says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Uh, it'd be interesting to know, without reading it, what you would fill in the blanks with on that. What do you think God hates? What, what would he list in a list of things that God hates? Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Now, notice what the first one is. Verse 17, haughty eyes. <laughs> haughty eyes. Let, let me give you another word for that. Pride. Pride. God hates pride. Now, you can think of a lot of things you might put first without putting that. But do you know why God hates pride? Do you know that pride is really the mother sin? In Isaiah chapter 14, remember, it describes the fall of Lucifer. Well, let, let me, let's turn to it. Let's read it. Isaiah 14. Isaiah chapter 14. And look at verses 12 through 14. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. I don't have my Bible drill hands tonight. Isaiah 14. Now let's look at verse 12. Oh, how have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning? He's talking about an angel. He's talking about Lucifer. Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations, but you, that is Lucifer, later known as the devil, but you said in your heart, now notice this, I will ascend to heaven. That I will is a statement of ultimate pride. And what is he saying he's going to do? He's going to ascend to heaven. Now, you might say that's a worthy devil. <laughs> he wants to go to heaven. No, not exactly. Before his motivation is go in going to heaven is that he might rule over heaven. He says, I will ascend, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Now, church, what is, what is the stars of God? What does that refer to? It refers to angels. You see, this is an angel who wants to supersede God. He wants to supersede all the other angels. He has one goal in mind, and that is to be the ultimate ruler, to displace God, and for him to be worshipped as God. He said, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Again, it's a statement referring to power and authority. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. There he's saying, I'm, I'm going to go above the clouds, the heavenly, where God dwells. I'm going to go above the angels, all the other angelic creations, I'm going to rule. And then he makes this unbelievable statement. 
I will make myself like the most high. Question. How in the world can the devil ever be like God? What was he shooting for when he said, I will be like God? That he would look like God? That he would have a moral being like God? No. There's only one way the devil wanted to be like God. And that is everything rested in God. He was the ultimate and final authority. And so what Satan wanted out of his own pride, even though he was a created being, he wanted to usurp his creator and rule the universe. Now, God says there's seven things I hate, and the first is pride. We see a little bit of why. Because it was pride that was the ultimate sin. It was pride that brought about the demise of this angelic being who was at the top of the scale. He was the number one angel, Ezekiel says, and, and caused him to fall and become the devil. So uh, he, he, uh, uh, he says that my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. See that word haughtiness? It's, it's another way of saying pride. Nor do I involve myself in great matters. That's interesting. David says, I've learned my limits. I've learned what I can do and what I can't do. I've learned I wanted to build a temple. God said no. And David said, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to kick against the goads. I'm using a Pauline statement there. I'm not going to react against that. I've learned to, to rest, that's a good word, to rest in the will of God or in the things too difficult for me. That's a good thing to learn. Now, what's he saying? He's saying I'm learning contentment. I'm learning to be who I am, doing what God created me to do. Now, we see that even more here. Verse 2, surely I have composed and quieted my, my soul like a weaned child rest against his mother. Now, he said, I've quietened my soul, and he uses this picture of a weaned child. And what's that? That's, that's a child who's gone through all the, the hard stuff of being weaned away from his mother's milk. And it was a hard time, but now he's gotten through that maturity process, and now he can rest in his mother's lap and not be grasping, not be crying, not being discontent, but he's learned knowing that his mother is going to take care of him. And he's going to have every need he has met. So it's just addressing the whole thing of contentment. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord for this time forth and forever. So that's the first uh, three. Uh, and these are the short, uh, these are some of the shortest of the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, so the, put, put in across there, contentment. And the question is, I hope that's not me. Yes, it is. Pardon me. Uh, um, the question this address addresses in each of us is, are we content where God put us and what, what God has gifted us to do? You know, for a preacher, that's hard to learn sometimes. You know, I remember when I was a kid preacher, I heard some great preachers, and everyone I'd hear, I'd want to preach just like them. And I heard Angel Martinez, and, you know, he was a Mexican. And the first, first sermon I preached after him, I held my Bible like he did and tried to speak with a Spanish accent, you know. How stupid can it get, you know? 
But we're just kids. I was a 19-year-old kid. I thought, that's where the power is. It must be in the accent, you know. Uh, uh, but, but learning, and it took, it's taken me years, you know, to learn I'm who God made me. And I can accept that and be comfortable and rest in that. So there's contentment. Well, let's move on. I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing what I said I wasn't going to do. Let's go to, let's go to 132. Now, here's the difference in 132 is it is the longest. <laughs> it is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. Not only that, it's twice as long as any of the other Psalms of Ascent. Uh, they are uh, the longest other than this one is eight verses. But here he goes on a considerable... So this psalm, Psalm 132, is not a psalm written by David, but it's a psalm of ascent written about David. So let's pick it up in chapter, uh, in chapter 132, verse 1. 132, verse 1. I remember, O Lord, on David's behalf. All his affliction... Now, that refers to a lifetime in David of affliction from the good and the bad, the indifferent. God, remember that. Remember what David has gone through. But how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it. Circle that word, it. What is he referring to? What is the it? We heard of it in Ephrata. We found it in the field of Jr. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. You, and here's the answer to the question, what is the it? You and the ark of your strength. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. Now, the, the, the ark here is the central focus because the ark is a symbol of the presence of God. And the psalm itself is concerned with the priority of getting God back at the center of the life of Israel. You see, the ark had been lost for 20 years. Whenever the Philistines stole the ark, remember? And they took it and placed it in the temple of Dagon, their God. How many of you remember what happened to Dagon that night? Remember? He toppled over and, and crumbled, just being in the very presence of the ark. And so the Philistines thought, we better get rid of this thing. And so for the next 20 years or so, the ark, was kind of like a mobile tent. It just traveled around and, and, and they tried to get rid of it and, and uh, everywhere the ark would go or where somebody would, it would come to somebody's house, then the blessings of God would be upon them. So David had come to the place where he felt like the ark must be returned to Jerusalem. 
And uh, so he has learned by failure the wrong way to try to, to uh, get the ark back. Remember how they, they were uh, carrying it on a cart and when it started to shake, one of, the, one of them reached out and touched it and instantly he was killed. And God was teaching them a lesson. You can't trifle with the presence of God. And so they had to move the ark as God prescribed it to be moved. And David had learned that lesson by some hard lessons of defeat. And so David said, we're going to move it right this time, but we're going to move it. And so he says here, um, and let your godly ones sing for joy. Uh, now, the first ten verses in, in this um, uh, uh, is, a, is a prayer that they're praying for David. And then verse 11 through 18 is God's answer to the prayer. Uh, so let's begin, pick it up in verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. If, now notice this is a conditional promise. If your sons, that's David's sons, will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon the throne forever. Now, here God is promising conditionally David's lineage or David's um, family will rule on the throne in Jerusalem under God's authority. But that's under the condition that they do what the Lord says, that they follow the Lord, that they, that they um, play, pay close attention to God's will and refuse to follow the ways of the idolatrous kings, which most of them were, all of them in the northern kingdom. And so he's, he's here giving David a promise that his sons would rule upon the throne forever. But now Ephesians 3.20 says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Now let's think about that verse in relation to this. It is obvious if you read your Old Testament that his sons did not follow the ways of God and therefore this conditional promise was not fulfilled as God had promised it would be if they would obey him and follow him. Uh, when the Old Testament closes, you see the last of David's line uh, has... has um, uh, been taken captive, and the, the, the actual family line of David uh, is no longer ruling. They are POWs in Babylon. But notice something. We said that the, the last half of the verse is, uh, is the answer to the prayer. Look at verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion, and he has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her need with bread. Her priest also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause, now notice this, the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. 
So, he's continuing to talk about a son of David. But he's never, he's not talking now about the earthly reign of his earthly sons. He's talking about one particular son of David. And of course, you and I know on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, we know who that son was and is. He's talking here prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ, the heavenly son of David. And he says that I, I've caused the horn of David to spring forth. The word horn refers to authority and power. If you see it in throughout the scripture, when, when they talk about the horn of something, and he's talking about a man, he's talking about someone who has extreme power. You, you see it in Revelation on many, many occasions. And he says, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. That, that means a continuation of the Davidic line which culminates in the one who called himself the light of the world. Let me say that again. He's talking here about, about a powerful king who culminates, who is the culmination of the Davidic line, and it culminates in the one who called himself the light of the world. He says, I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. Well, this 18 verses demands, should have a lot more, but I'm, I got to go quickly to finish up. Let's, let's go. Uh, and so over that, we write the word priority. I hope you see. And where I get that is David said, I'm not going to go to sleep. I don't want to go back to my house. I don't want to walk into my, my cedar-lined house while God doesn't have a house. He said, God deserves the very best. And I, if I don't even sleep anymore, we're not, I'm not going to rest until God is back in his right place in his house. And that, that just simply means that David was getting his priorities right. And it's a challenge to us to live our life God-centered. 20 years, 20 years they had lived without God being at the center of their life. 20 years they didn't even know where God was, where the ark was. And David said, we're not going to live any longer like that. This is unacceptable. But you know, it's a, it, there's an application here to us. We can treat God just on the peripheral areas of our life. And we can kind of ignore him and just kind of go on. Or we can make him the center of our life. And the psalmist is calling us to do that. All right, let's go uh, to the next one. From priorities and contentment, uh, we move... Uh, to unity. Look at Psalm 133. The key word here is unity. And how desperately they needed this word. Because you remember what happened is that there wasn't but three united kings in Israel's history. Saul, David, and Solomon. And after Solomon ruled, the kingdom divided. And so they weren't, they weren't famous for their unity. They were famous they, they had a reputation for disunity. They couldn't get along. And so notice what he says in Psalm 133, these three verses. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, 
even Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, coming down upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, here's something I want you to see. Unity precedes Unity precedes the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes we get that backwards. We say, we need the Holy Spirit to unify us. If you remember, I preached a sermon, I'm sure you don't, I barely do, but uh, I preached a sermon uh, on the three phases of sanctification. I, I think I called it six words that will change your life. Um, cl cleanse me, cleanse yourself, and uh, wash me, wash yourself, and wash one another. Well, we, uh, until, until we cleanse ourselves, until we do what God commanded us to do, the power of God can't rest upon us. And one of the things God said to do, this is the cleanse me part, he told us that we're to love one another and we're to live lives united to one another. And so God is saying, that's something you are to do. That's something you're to do. If you want my hand upon your church, if you want my power upon your, your life and your church, then come together. Quit fighting each other. Fight a common enemy, which is the devil. So uh, the, the word I put on this psalm is, is the word unity. Unity. Now, it's an interesting thing. He, he uses two two pictures here. One is spiritual and one is secular. The, the spiritual picture is this. It's the picture of Aaron, the high priest, being anointed with oil. And when the high priest was anointed, unlike the average priest, which would be sprinkled with oil, the high priest would basically be given a bath in oil. I mean, they would pour the oil on the high priest when he was anointed. And it would be so much oil that it would come off of his head, come down into his beard, and it would flow down on his, uh, the, his uh, breast piece here. Now, if you remember anything about your Old Testament history, the, the breast plate had the names of all the tribes of Israel on it. And he also had two places on each shoulder and six on one side, six on the other of the 12 tribes. And the picture here is of the oil coming off of his head, down into his beard, over the breastplate, and it's covering all 12 tribes. And so the picture here is the anointing of, 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 of oil, and oil pictures in both Old and New Testament, the anointing with oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Oil is found as a picture of the Holy Spirit on numerous occasions throughout the Scripture. So that is a that is a picture of the unity caused by the Spirit, and, and uh, rather coming as a result of the unity of those 12 tribes, uh, not so much causing it, but being in a place where God can unify them by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then there's another picture here. He talks about the dew from Hermon. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, Hermon is the highest point. It's, I think, I'm thinking 700 feet. That's off the top of my head, and that's a dangerous thing. But it's, uh, I think it's the highest point in Israel. It is the source of the Jordan River. 
And in Mount Hermon and the, and the surrounding area was, was known for the dew. And in the Middle East, in Israel, dew is very, very important to the, uh, to the growth of, of, of their uh, crops. And, and so here again, he's using not a sacred picture, but a secular picture of how the dew is refreshing and how the dew is, is so important to the life of agriculture there. And he's using that uh, as, as a picture here uh, of the importance of, of unity. Unity is like the dew. Unity is like the oil flowing down. He's presenting it as something precious and something to be sought after. I don't have time to develop this thought, but I want to give it to you because I don't have a chance to preach this to you on Sunday morning. So give me about three minutes. I will show you a precious type in the, in the Old Testament, uh, talking about unity. Uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 45, verse 24, let me read one verse to you. This comes out of the story of Joseph. And uh, Joseph has been in Egypt. He's been promoted to prime minister. His brothers uh, and father, Jacob, and, and his 12, uh, 11 other brothers uh, have run out of food. And so they're having to come to Egypt to find some food. And they're standing in front of their brother Joseph that they sold as a slave years before. And they don't know who he is. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And so finally, finally, Joseph asked them about their father. And they said, he's still alive. He said, then I want you to go back and get him and bring him. And then when he, when he told him to go back, this is what he said. He made an interesting statement. So he sent his brethren away. This is Genesis 45, 24. So he sent his brethren away and they departed. And he said unto them, see that you fall not out by the way. Isn't that an interesting statement? See that you fall not out by the way. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, guys, when y'all go, I know y'all. I mean, you sold me as a slave. I know your character. And, and when you go back to get, your, get our, our dad and bring him here, you'll start fussing and fighting together. And guys, I'm going to tell you, as prime minister, I'm telling you, don't fall out by the way. Don't get in a fuss and fight and not accomplish the mission I'm sending you to do. Now, here's the question I ask. Why were they not to fall out, by the way? Number one, they're brothers. They are brothers. It's tragic when you can't get along with anybody, but it's doubly tragic when you can't get along in your own family. It's tragic when the, the, the world out there, the lost world, can't get along. It's doubly tragic when a church is known more for its discontent and its division than for the glory of God. We're brothers. Number two, why should you not fall out, by the way? We're brothers of the king. We're not just brothers. Our brother is prime minister. He's in charge. And if there's anybody that ought to get along, it's the children of the king, right? Number two, number three. We're brothers, we're brothers of the king. Number three, we're brothers of the king that has been given every resource we could possibly want to get the mission done. Read that story. When they went back to get their aged dad, they had wagons full of supplies. <laughs> In fact, that's the only thing that convinced Jacob that they really were, that they really had met Joseph. When he, when he couldn't believe it, they said, look at the wagons. And it says, when they saw the wagons, 
they believed. Now, last thing. They're brothers. Why? I'm talking about unity here. Why should we be unified? Well, they're brothers. They're brothers of the king. They're brothers of the king that has all the resources that you could ever possibly. Here's, here's the fourth thing. Last thing. They had a message that was too important to not be told. You know what that message was? Listen to it. Joseph is alive. That old man had, had thought for years that his son had been killed by a wild animal. Here's the message. Joseph is alive. Number two. And Joseph has forgiven us. Hallelujah. And Dad, you'll never believe this, but Joseph has prepared a place for us. You see where I'm going? Hey, let me tell you something. Church, and let me just brag on you a little bit. This church has an impeccable reputation of being a unified church. And I applaud that. God bless you. And it's sad. Not all churches can say that. I don't mean to denigrate them. But you have a message you've got to tell. Here it is. Jesus is alive. There are people in this county don't don't really know much about that. Number two, and Jesus has forgiven us. And number three, and Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, he'll come again and receive us to himself. That's a great message, isn't it? I mean, that's a great word. That's a great word. And so we can't afford to be anything but unified. Okay, let, let's, go, let's go to the, the next one. Psalm 133. I mean, uh, Psalm 134. This is the last one. Write out the word worship. Where now, see, they stay for the festival last about a week. We're getting ready to go home. <laughs> the group is getting ready to go home. And so they're going to say a word to the priests and Levites, and the priests and Levites is going to say one word to them. And so here, here we read the last three verses of this, uh, this uh, Psalm of Ascent. Okay? Psalm 134. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord. That word, all servants, I think in that context probably means all you priests and Levites. We're going home. We're going to leave you here. You stay here all the time. Bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord. You're here to bless the Lord. You're here. Your calling is to bless the Lord. Who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now that's the word of challenge from the people to the priest and Levites. And then here's the last benediction of the priest and Levites to the pilgrims who are now leaving. The festival is over and they're going back home, going back down the mountain. And they say to the pilgrims, 
May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. He's talking here about worship. John Armstrong says that in most churches today that he travels in, he's an itinerant, that most churches experience what he calls Mac worship. Mac worship. Fast food worship. Man-centered worship. And the psalm, not only this one, but throughout, calls for a God-centered worship. He says, bless the Lord. That's the essence of worship. The old Westminster Catechism put it right. And it's number one question. What is the purpose of man? And that is, here's, here's the answer. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Perhaps this exhortation was given to the pilgrims after the great festival because he wanted us and them to know that the focus of our lives should be worshipped.